one Sunday. We've uh, finished the Gospel of John, and uh, next week is Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, we'll be considering what the Bible has to say about thanks, and then we're into Advent. And, uh, and so what to do with this Sunday? And so I was praying about that this week, and... Um, and uh, I decided what to do. It came from a correspondence that I uh, had with a young man from another church who had contacted me. But uh, as we begin to think about uh, this topic today that has to do with worship and what God requires of us in worship, um, those of you who have been at uh, my house, you know that we've got clocks hanging all over the place. And, uh, and we've got a clock in the living room that um, it's done for. It doesn't work anymore. Well, it's right twice a day, but it, it doesn't work. And uh, changing the batteries, you know, it's one of those AA batteries. So I was in a department store looking for a new clock. Haven't found one yet that I really like. And, uh, and I'm sure you can still get expensive clocks, but those clocks that have the, you know, the little square thing in the back with the AA battery, those are fine. Those will work. Those things, uh, they look like they're made out of metal or wood. They're not, they're not really, but they look like it. And so, uh, so I was looking for one of those uh, cheap clocks, and I, and I saw in this department store a clock um, that had the same mechanism, the same AA battery, but it was one of those clocks, it looked like it was from the 1800s, and it said uh, regulator across the glass. Now maybe some of you have seen those clocks before, those, those regulator clocks, but you didn't know what they were. R regulator was not a brand of clock, it was a, it was a mechanism. In the, in the late 1800s, uh, typical uh, clock technology was accurate to within about five minutes a week. And that was too great of a variance for the railroads, which relied upon precise timing to keep the trains from colliding. And so regulator clocks could be found at every train station. And the railroad personnel, every time they stopped at a train station, they would reset their pocket watches to that regulator, and a lot of the travelers would do so as well. And what set those clocks apart from the ordinary clock technology of the day is that instead of being accurate to within five minutes per week, they were accurate to within 10 seconds a month. And the railroads had to be careful when they obtained uh, regulator clocks because there were unscrupulous people then, as there is today, that they were really regulators and they weren't just clocks that had regulator painted on the front of the glass. Because having something regulate their schedules that wasn't really a regulator could prove disastrous. Well, at the time of the Reformation, a principle for worshiping God was recovered and it came to mark particularly the Reformed and Presbyterian churches. That uh, principle was known in principle, but it wasn't given a name until the late 20th century. And it's come to be known as the regulative principle of worship. Maybe some of you have heard that phrase before. It was a principle by which to regulate worship. And as we meet with God and our hearts are changed by his grace, it's a principle that's designed to keep us from collisions. 
The principle finds support in a number of passages of scripture, but the two that it was originally drawn from was Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, and 2 Samuel, verses 6 through 8. And I'd like to read both of those passages to you this morning. This is God's word from Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered strange fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. And then 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. Father, as we consider your word today, might we, O Lord, regard you as holy. As the Apostle Peter says, sanctify Christ as uh, holy in our hearts. The Father, that we might see the great grace that you show to us and your patience and kindness to us. But also, Father, that we would take the things uh, that you tell us in your word seriously. And that, Father, you would, uh, that, that, that you would cleanse us by your grace through faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Those passages are startling. Probably not the passages to read for uh, invite your friends to church night. God obviously cares about how he's worshipped. People under the old covenant died when they got it wrong. Serious. 
with the dawning of the gospel of God's grace, that certainly means God's patience toward us, but worship is still a serious business. And, and so today, in this one day that we've got between when the gospel of John was uh, done and well, we looked at the Lord's Supper last week, we've got Thanksgiving uh, coming up next week, and then we're into Advent. But I want to consider with you today three things. Um, what the so-called regulative principle of worship is, not what it is and what it means. So what is the regulative principle of worship? Or more specifically to start, what is it not? Because sometimes this notion of the regulative principle of worship is invoked by people who are not really clear about what it means. They're confused about it. Um, and so let me just state some things that it's not. The regulative principle of worship does not mean traditional worship as opposed to contemporary worship. It's not what it means. Every once in a while, I'll get an email uh, from someone asking me what kind of worship our church has. I always answer the same way. I say biblical worship. I do that because when people, and I know usually what they're fishing for, when they ask if worship is traditional or contemporary, I found that people have radically different ideas about what is meant by that. Uh, one woman who contacted me asked if we had traditional worship, and I've learned to ask people when they ask that, what do you mean by that? And uh, she wanted to know, um, what's the church architecture like? What are the decorations like? What's the color scheme? That was traditional worship. The regulative principle does not mean traditional as opposed to contemporary worship. Um, the regulative principle doesn't have anything to do with those kinds of questions. 45 seconds worth of reflection should tell you that. If what regulated worship was traditionalism, was what had been done in the past, then reformed worship services would look exactly like Roman Catholic worship services. And in fact, that was the idea of Queen Elizabeth. She thought that, well, maybe we can find a happy medium here uh, in the church in England. And what we'll do is we'll make the, the worship look exactly like Roman Catholic worship, but we'll pour reformed doctrine and meaning into it. And then everybody will be satisfied. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that nobody was satisfied, and least of all, the Puritans. At the time of the Reformation, there was instituted what was a then new way of worshiping God because it was judged to be more faithful to Scripture. The very criticism of the Reforming churches at the time of the Reformation was that they were breaking with long-standing traditions in worship. So the regulative principle of worship did not mean traditional worship. Nor does the regulative principle of worship mean regulated by my preferences. Uh, over the years, I've had the privilege of interacting with some new church plants. And sometimes I've heard people invoke the regulative principle 
of worship to justify a person's preferences or what they are accustomed to in worship. But what regulates worship is not our preferences, what seems good or seems right to me. And sometimes the regulative principle will become a trump card to be played to baptize one's preferences and wrap them in the garb of something more authoritative than simply saying, well, this is what I prefer. And as, and as long as nobody's quite clear about what the regulative principle is, and as long as the person who is invoking it yells about it and pounds the table hard enough, sometimes they get their way. The regulative principle, likewise, does not mean, and this is, I think, very important, does not mean according to scripture and the light of nature. I spoke with a young man recently from another church um, who contended in all seriousness that the only proper music for worship is Western music written between 1730 and 1820. In all seriousness, that was his contention. That music from other cultures or other time periods violated the regulative principle. And so I asked him what he thought the regulative principle of worship was. And in response, he cited Westminster Confession 21.1 to make the case that the regulative principle of worship tells us that God indicates how we're to worship him by what he reveals to us in his word and what he reveals to us by the light of nature. And so while the word of God doesn't say we should worship him with Western music written between 1730 and 1820, the, the light of nature, he contended, reveals that this is the most beautiful music ever written and therefore the only appropriate music for worship and is thus the music required by the regulative principle. Now, of course, that raises several questions. Were people who worshipped before 1730 displeasing to God? What about people from other cultures, from Africa or India or Asia, all of which places the gospel went and churches were established before it ever went to Western Europe? And there are indigenous churches there now. Are they worshiping in a way that God does not approve? And by what exactly are we to judge the assessment of the most beautiful music ever written? A discussion ensued in Sunday school today about what made for beautiful landscape. And it was, a, was an interesting discussion how different people think different things. And that's certainly so, isn't it? There's music that you find beautiful, that you find moving, and that will differ. I have a son who likes opera. I would rather endure a root canal and a simultaneous stick in the eye than have to sit through an opera. This young man's contention was that the uh, light of nature um, indicated that, well, any honest and intelligent person must surely agree that this was the greatest music of all time. Well, maybe. 
But aside from the fact that many people would, would differ that music in that 90-year period was the most beautiful music ever written, his invoking of the light of nature as a part of the regulative principle is to misunderstand what the reformers thought that principle was. So what exactly is the regulative principle of worship? Well, simply put, we can sum it up as in this way, that the, that the Reformation's regulative principle of, of worship is pretty well laid out in uh, Westminster Confession of Faith in a few passages. I'm going to read them for you. In chapter 20 and verse 2, it says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, in addition to it, in matters of faith or worship. And then Confession of Faith 21.1 says, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the whole, uh, soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. I, I want you to note the but that comes in the middle of that because this young man, uh, as I corresponded with him, was saying that, well, you see, 21.1 speaks about worship and, and the light of nature. Well, yes, what it says about the light of nature is that that tells us that there is a God and he is to be worshiped and served. And then it says, but, but, the acceptable way of worshiping that true God is limited by his revealed will. And he may not be worshipped in any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. So to be very clear about that, the regulative principle of worship does not derive from the teaching of Scripture and the light of nature, but from the teaching of Scripture alone. To regulate worship from any other source, our spiritual forebears believed, was to destroy the principle that God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are beside his word in matters of worship. So does the light of nature play any role in worship? A Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1 and paragraph 6 says this, that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So let me break that down a bit. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God. What time will we meet for worship? Where will we meet for worship? Will there be seats or will we all be standing when we worship? Or will we be sitting on the floor or kneeling? 
What prayers will be led by one person while others assent to them in their hearts and what prayers will be said by all? Decisions have to be made about all of those things that once they're made will be binding upon us all. But those decisions, binding as they are, can't be made to bind the conscience. That is to say, we cannot say the right time to worship is at 11 a.m. and any church or person uh, that meets for worship at another time is sinning against God. There's some aspects of worship that are uh, governed by um, what is common to human actions and societies, which of course will differ from place to place and throughout time, and will require, as the confession says, Christian prudence, that is, thoughtful deliberation in seeking to honor God. And it's to be done according to the general rules of the word. In a moment, uh, we'll look at the account of Uzzah here, but just to use the Ark of the Covenant as an example, um, what that Ark is to look like is described in Exodus 25. That's where the uh, directions were given for the construction of the Ark. It tells us what kind of wood it's to be made of, that it's to be overlaid with gold, uh, what it's to look like, tells that there to be two cherubim on the surface of it. Uh, on the lid of it. Now, um, I've seen models of the Ark of the Covenant. Have you all seen models of the Ark of the Covenant? Do they all look the same? Do they sometimes look different than what you pictured in your mind? And when that happens, you can look at it and you can evaluate it in terms of the objective criteria that's given in the scripture and you find that they uh, check all the boxes, but they look different. People's cherubim may look different. They might have different length wings, or do they have human faces or animal faces? And the Bible simply doesn't tell us those things. The form is different. Now, now those models, to the degree that they're accurate, uh, are created observing the general rules of the word so what makes the difference well what makes the difference is the influences the the context that people have in i don't know what your idea of a uh of a cherubim is or seraphim uh, are but i want to tell you that whatever it is that didn't come to your mind as a mystical revelation from god you got that from somewhere. You got that from somewhere in your upbringing, from the movies, or whatever it may be. Now, so far I've explained what the regulative principle of worship is not and what it is. The regulative principle of worship does not mean traditional worship. It doesn't mean worship according to my preferences or what I'm accustomed to. It does not mean whatever the Bible and the light of nature teaches us. The Reformation principle is that what is done in worship as a conscience-binding principle is regulated by the Word of God and by no other source. 
the regulative principle of worship pertains to and only to the elements of worship that God has prescribed in his word. So let me go back then to talk about where that principle comes from and what it means. And the first is in the passage, the short passage that I read from Leviticus chapter 10, that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers and put fire in them and added incense And they offered strange fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke to when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself to be holy uh, in the light of all the people. I will be honored. And we're told Aaron remained silent. It's a remarkable statement because he just seen his two sons die before his eyes. The account is startling. And since the end of the Mosaic administration, God thankfully deals more mercifully with us. But we learn something from that account and what it means for our worship. What, what was their offense? There's nothing wrong with the incense that they were about to offer. The text doesn't indicate that. It was the fire. And presumably, they knew, it becomes clear to us from Leviticus 16, 48, that the, that the fire for the incense was to be taken from the fire before the altar. But what difference does that make? I mean, fire is fire, right? Fire will burn the incense regardless of where it comes from. Well, apparently it mattered a great deal. And it was this passage that led the Westminster divines to conclude in Confession of Faith 21, God may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Now we can offer speculations and guesses as to why they were to take fire only from the altar for the incense. We could philosophize and theologize about that, and who knows, we might even be right. But in the end, it's not about what we understand or approve of. When it comes to worship, it's about being obedient to what God has revealed. And then in 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 8, it's really a startling account. The, the background to this story is that the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant in battle. We read about it in, in 1 Samuel. Um, that they took that Ark, didn't go well for them, and they sent it back. But it was not in Jerusalem, and David went to retrieve it. And on the way back, something happened to upset The ox cart, can you picture it? The Ark of the Covenant is set there. We see the people. It's not formal worship, but they're they're taking it back uh, to the city of David. And and David and others are rejoicing before the Lord, uh, worshiping with music and song. And as they go through a wadi, through a dry riverbed, uh, the oxen stumble. And there's a danger, it appears, of, of of that cart falling. And Uzzah reaches out his hands to steady it. 
And he struck dead, we're told, for his irreverent act. And you look at that and you say, I don't get it. And you read the story, David didn't get it. David was angry. It was a good thing to do, a noble thing to do, a natural thing to do for someone who revered the ark of God. Or we could put it another way. We could say, well, doing that was just common sense. It's what the light of nature would require of us. So much so that when God struck Uzzah down, David was angry because surely Uzzah did not mean to be irreverent. That's where the bot of Westminster Confession 21.1 comes in. The light of nature shows that there is a God who is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served in a word who's to be worshipped. But... The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped in any way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. God had revealed that only the Levites and specifically only the sons of Kohath were to touch the Ark of God in Numbers 4.15. It's a tough lesson. But God essentially said to Uzzah, what part of don't touch the ark didn't you understand? Now, while God's mercy to us in Christ is great, the principle is the same. The regulative principle means in part that doing the wrong thing in worship, doing things contrary to God's word, even if it's done with a right heart, is still wrong. So what does that mean? Well, again, to quote the confession of faith, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So the elders must set a time for worship. And it's right for them to tell you, you should be here then. The Bible tells us don't give up assembling yourselves together. If everybody picked their own time for when they were going to worship, we couldn't assemble ourselves together. What the elders couldn't do was to say God's time for worship is 11 a.m. And any church not observing that is sinning against God. The general architecture and decor of our sanctuary um, makes me feel most comfortable wearing a jacket in the pulpit. Um, what we couldn't do, what the elders couldn't do, is to say, you must wear a jacket to come to worship. Or couldn't say if we had a, a, a guest preacher who came wearing a button-down shirt or maybe even a polo shirt that he was sinning. But in those things that the word of God prescribes, there's no flexibility. What are some of those things? Well, preaching and teaching can 
only be from the word of God. Worldly wisdom has no place in the proclamation in worship. Even when that worldly wisdom, not having to do with the kingdom of God, might be right and prudent and wise in this age. And the Lord's Supper must be observed with bread and with the fruit of the vine. We wouldn't be at liberty, for example, to substitute lamb for the bread, even if we were to do so in an attempt to honor Christ because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Uzzah is a reminder, the wrong thing done in worship, that is, things that are contrary to what God's word has prescribed, or prescribing things beside it as a conscience-binding principle, even if they're done for the right reason or from a sincere heart, are wrong. We were created as worshipers. And if we do not worship the creator, we will worship created things. And worshiping created things rather than worshiping the creator is what our sin inclines all of us to. But the son of God came into the world to restore us to what we were created for by removing our sin, by reconciling us to God and bringing us peace with God. But it's not only about who or what we worship, it's about how we worship. And God has given to us a regulator for that. He's given to us his word. Beware of the unreliable substitutes. The regulator of our worship is not tradition, not preference, not the light of nature. The regulator of our worship is the word of God alone. When we fail to understand that, we're on a collision course, a collision course with God and with other worshipers. And Christ came to bring peace between both. We're told in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said to the church at Ephesus, made up of two very distinct groups, he said Christ himself is our peace. God seeks worshipers, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, that's what Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria. And Christ has come into the world so that we can. The way we worship as a conscience-binding principle is and must be dictated only by God's word. And the end of that Uh, is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. And I trust it's Christ's prayer for us as well. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You pray with me.
Father, thank you in the season as we uh, enter into a season of thanksgiving. Thank you for our spiritual forebears. This precious principle that they've given to us. Uh, help us, Father, to understand it when we, when, we, when we don't. We sidetrack ourselves with... Um, and sidetrack ourselves with things, we are not able to focus upon what your word does tell us. So, Father, help us to, um, by carefully studying your word, to worship you in a manner that is acceptable. And from the sincerity of hearts that are cleansed by faith, and Father, we'll give you the glory as we do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.